Well, I think that some of you parents have been alarmed a little bit. I don't think we have any pencils up here. Is that right? Oh, Doug, you got something back? You, you don't. You got two. So, pull them out of your purses or something. Okay, <clears throat> it'll it'll work. You never realize how thankful you are for something until it's not there, right? And so we are thankful for that. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of First Peter. As I alluded to already in the service, we're here in First Peter chapter 3. I want to start by, by putting the first six verses of First Peter 3 upon our minds. Um, uh, my text this morning is only verses 3 and 4. But uh, it would be good to have all these things upon our minds. <clears throat> After speaking in chapter 2, verse 13, of how we ought to submit to governmental institutions, Peter then goes on to speak about how servants ought to be submissive to their masters in chapter 2, verse 18. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 21, he describes this example of Christ in submitting even to the point of death. And now he comes to how wives should be submissive to their husbands. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now these words, Peter's instructing wives how it is they ought to conduct themselves in their marriage relationship, even if their husband <clears throat> is not obedient to the word, if things are difficult for them. Peter first addresses wives on how they ought to relate to their husbands. So ought to be an attitude of submission. Peter then addresses in verses 3 and 4 that we're looking at this morning, how it is that wives ought to dress, what ought to be their beauty, and their inner attitudes as well. And then verses 5 and 6, and Peter will instruct them where they can go to look for encouragement in these things. Well, we began last week by looking at the portion of, of Scripture contained in verses 1 and 2, and review is really quite simple uh, because the whole message of verse 1 and 2 is summed up in the first phrase, right? Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Everything else in verses 1 and 2 modify that exhortation. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. It's really a blanket statement that extends to all wives in all marriage relationships because that's the way that God made marriage. When God ordained and instituted marriage, He ordained the husband would be the head and the authority in the relationship. And He ordained that the woman would be the helper, would come alongside of Him and line herself up under him. And when you have a wonderful marriage, it looks like this. You have a, a husband who is lovingly leading his wife as he's dying to himself and serving her as he serves his own body. 
with great compassion and care and kindness and honor to his wife. And when you have a wonderful marriage, the wife also willingly submits herself to her husband, just as Christ submits, just as the church submits herself to Christ. But in the case where the marriage is not wonderful and is experiencing difficulty, there's no reason for a husband to say, well, my wife isn't doing her duty, therefore I don't have to do mine. And there's no reason for a wife to say, well, husband isn't doing his duty, so I don't have to do mine. No, still what Peter calls us to here is even if a husband isn't fulfilling his duty of lovingly leading a wife, doesn't give her any reason to abandon her role of submission. And in fact, since Peter here is addressing the wives, people, Peter here is, is very um, careful and intentional to point out the situation in which a husband isn't fulfilling the role in his marriage. I mean, he says, even if a husband is disobedient to the word, a wife still needs to do that. A wife still needs to submit to her husband. If you have a husband who's heard the gospel but not believed it, wives here this morning, your call is still to live in submission to your husband. And, and the aim of that, Peter says, is so that potentially, in, in God's grace, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they look upon your chaste and respectful behavior. Perhaps they will say, well, there is a goodness in God's word. If it changes my wife in this way to submit to me, even when I'm being disobedient, there must be some truth to that. And he would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we fleshed that out last week. At the end of my, the service last week, I was talking with Pat and Carol Scholl. And um, in the course of conversation, they were commenting about my message. And then they said, that was our case in our marriage. And with their permission, I'm even sharing this about them. They, <clears throat> they were married young. Neither of them had grew up in church at all, so they had no reference to understand Christians or what Christians really were. But Carol was converted to Christ when she was 21. I think that's right, Carol, right? 21. And uh, at first she was like any new Christian, really excited about her faith, and she wanted her husband Pat to believe the gospel as well and, and share in the joy. And uh, so she told me last week how she was sharing the gospel with him often. And Pat, Pat told me, she said, I, I, thought, I thought she was nuts, is <laughs> what Pat said. Um, he thought maybe she was just going through a phase, that would eventually she'd grow out of it, but... She didn't. And uh, in fact, Pat told me that um, one time during their conversation, um, during, during their marriage, before he was, con- before, I think before you were converted, having a conversation, you're saying, Pat, uh, Carol, you've changed. You, something's different. About, not changed for bad. I mean, changed for good, but something has got into you and you're different. But still, Pat didn't believe the gospel despite the constant urgings and pleadings of Carol. But then as about two years into it, Carol said, well, she just kind of closed her mouth. And just said, I just need to be about being my duty as a, as a wife and love my husband and submit to him. And uh, it was a fact at that point in their marriage, they said that um, things changed. When she stopped talking, focused attention upon her living, that's when Pat started asking and started inquiring about Christianity. And two years later, Pat was converted. Um, how old were you when you converted, Pat? 25. And uh, he'll tell you, it was a silent faithfulness of his wife that led him to the Lord. And I would just say, listen, if you, if you have opportunity, talk to him about it. 
and just say, hey, can you tell me more about that? That would be wonderful to hear. But it is the truth here of 1 Peter 3. So maybe this gives some of you wives who are in that situation, maybe it gives you hope that uh, it can can take place because that's exactly what Peter's talking to. One without a word as wives are submitting their husbands and putting forth their chaste and respectful behavior. So I was encouraged by that. I didn't know about that before my message last week and I thought you'd be encouraged with that as well. Well, last week my, my message to you wives was submit to your husbands. This week my message is seek your beauty. Okay, Seek your beauty. It's right there on the top of your notes. You can see it there. Because God wants for you to be beautiful. Wives, God wants for you to be beautiful. Young women, unmarried, God wants for you to be beautiful. But you need to realize that when I say seek your beauty, and when God wants you to be beautiful, He wants you to be beautiful in His sight. Right? And I'm not talking necessarily about external beauty. Rather, I'm talking about internal beauty that God observes and views as precious. That's what Peter says in verses 3 and 4. He says, don't place your value upon the external beauty. Rather, place your value upon the internal beauty which God sees. And that's where God wants all of you women to be beautiful, is your internal heart. You know, in our day and age, women will go to great extremes to make themselves beautiful. Today, thin is in. And in a quest to be skinny, many women have done some extreme things. You just think about what have women done to make themselves skinny so as to make themselves beautiful? Well, there are many who starve their bodies and have not eaten so as to deprive their bodies of the needed nutrition. And we even have a name for it. What's the name of that? Anorexia. Some women have indulged themselves only to vomit in the bathroom. We have a name for that. What's that called? Bulimia. We have some women who have had surgery to remove portions of their intestines so that their food doesn't digest so well. And so then they lose weight as well. All in a quest to be beautiful. Today, youth is in. Many women have sought, seek out, have sought out a plastic surgeon who's able to do wonders removing wrinkles from your face to make you look a little bit younger. Many women have sought out a surgeon to perform liposuction, removing unwanted fat from portions of the body and and tucking the skin under it. In fact, even one's called a tummy tuck. Take a a big bulging tummy. Just take the fat out of there. Just form the skin over. All in a quest to be beautiful. Well, don't think our society is unique because it isn't. Many societies down through the ages, women have gone to great lengths to um, reach their ideals of beauty. I read an article this week entitled The Price of Perfection, which a woman named Robin Hennig detailed many of the strange things that women have done down through the centuries in their quest for beauty. Let me just read a little bit. She said, During the Renaissance, well-born European women plucked out hairs one by one of their natural hairline all the way back to the crowns of their heads to give them that high, rounded foreheads thought to be beautiful at the time. Many of us men have high rounded foreheads, but women, the Renaissance, pluck their hair so as to so as to raise their hairline. In China, right up to World War II, upper class girls had their feet bound, crippling them for life, but ensuring the three or four inch long feet that were prized as exquisitely feminine. 
and just bound their feet. And as they have taken x-rays of women like that, their, their feet are like, you know, they, they're kind of like they're standing on their heels all the time and their feet are all deformed. But they have a little three or four inch shoe that they can wear all in a quest to obtain beauty. In Central Africa, the Mangbetu tightly wrapped the heads of female infants in pieces of giraffe hide to obtain an elongated cone-shaped heads that were taken to be a sign of beauty and intelligence. Among the Padang people of Burma, the ideal of feminine beauty was a greatly elongated neck, maybe 15 inches or more. And so even as children are small, they put rings around their necks. And they start stretching their necks, stretching their necks, stretching their necks. Get them long because they think that's what's beautiful. <clears throat> By the time they're full grown, having even 24 rings piled around their neck. They can't take them off anymore because they've become so accustomed to that. In England in the 1600s, in a way to lose weight, bloodletting was encouraged twice a year. From the right arm in the spring and from the left arm in the fall. In the 1930s, women actually swallowed tapeworms to lose weight. All in the name of beauty. Furthermore, to appear thin, women have subjected themselves to wearing corsets for nearly 600 years. Right? You know, corset around the waist to make the waist real thin. And listen, though people realized the practice was dangerous at the time, I mean, you, you get your waist real thin and you displace your bodily organs, you cut off circulation, causes fainting sometimes. Women continued to inflict this punishment upon themselves to obtain the 18-inch ideal around their waist. Henning describes the process. She says, No woman could tightlace herself alone, not only because the laces tied up the back, but also because the woman's natural instinct for self-preservation would likely prevent her from applying the kind of pressure needed to attain that 18-inch ideal. Most require the assistance of their maids, their mothers, or at very least, their bedposts. Sometimes the recalcitrant flesh fought back so mightily that it was required for two helpers, one to tighten the laces while the other held the subject in place with her foot. All in the name of beauty. Skin color down through the ages has um, been fashionable to be light-skinned. Right? Communicates wealth. Even in Solomon's day, Solomon's wife said, don't stare at me because I'm black because... The sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me and they sent me out to be vineyards. And I got I have black skin because I got tanned. Today tan is in. Historically, tan has been out. White has been in. In fact, this was true in the time of Elizabethan age when many women in search of the skin that looked like porcelain whitened their faces using ceruse, a potentially lethal combination of vinegar and lead, painting their face to make it white. In fact, Queen Elizabeth herself used ceruse so constantly that ultimately it pits into her skin. And it caused her then to paint it on thicker. Which she did. Laying hopes of camouflaging her growing imperfections. And this in turn only led to more and more corrosion. And the queen's face was ultimately so ravaged that she ordered all mirrors banned from the castle. But she was seeking beauty. The ancient Egyptians and Romans and Persians tried to make their eyes glitter by using drops of antimony sulfide. Think about what that does to your eyes. It's not good. They dried up tear ducts, eventually destroyed vision. Women became blind in their pursuit of beauty. 
And throughout the ages, the size of a woman's bust took its ups and downs as well. Ancient Greek, 14th century, and in 14th century Europe, the ideal torso was a flat torso. Woman's breast hidden and tightly bound. In the 1920s, the style came out as well. Brazier companies agreed to give you that boy-like flat appearance, squeezing their chest so closely to themselves against the ribcage with tight elastic binding. By the 1950s, Dolly, Cart- Dolly Parton style curves were back. Hennig writes, a well-rounded bosom was something to be proud of and something to be artificially created with some clever undergarments. Cosmetic surgeons learned how to surgically enhance a woman's upper torso. And at first, it was only those in, in Hollywood who received the surgery, but by the time silicone implants were banned for long-term safety re- reasons in 1992, some two million Americans had undergone the procedure. All in the name of beauty. Two million women at the risk of their own lives and future safety sought beauty in America. And all I can say to all this, and I hope you see it, is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right? I mean, many people in China view a small foot like that beautiful. Many view this long neck. And we look at that, we're repulsed by it a little bit. Could it be that some of the things that you women do to obtain external beauty is repulsive to others as well? And what our culture regards as beautiful, another may think to be ugly. And so when I call you wives to seek beauty, whose eye are you trying to catch? Try to catch the eyes of, of God. I don't want you with your beauty to try to capture the eyes of men so that when you walk down the street, heads will turn. God's not honored with that. I don't want you to catch the eyes of other women who will be envious of your good looks. I want you to be envious. I want your eyes of God to look down upon you and be beautiful. That's the essence of what Peter details for us in verses 3 and 4. How to be beautiful in God's eyes. And Peter says right here, Let not your adornment be merely external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, and putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So when you think about your beauty, don't focus externally, but rather focus upon the internal aspect of your life because the gentle and quiet spirit that God views as beautiful. See, when God looks down upon the women of this congregation... He looks right past your jewelry. He looks right past your makeup, your hairstyle, your clothes. And He looks right into your heart. He looks into your spirit. As for Samuel says, man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. And women, my exhortation to you in seeking your beauty is that you would know that the Lord looks upon your heart. And so work hard to cultivate within yourself the qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. Well, my outline this morning is simple. I have two points. Verse 3, external beauty. Verse 4, internal beauty. That's what it talks about. It says, external beauty, this is not where your focus and your value ought to be. Internal beauty is where your value ought to be. Verse 3 begins, your adornment must not be merely external. Or more literally, your adornment must not be external. In other words, when you think about your beauty, 
Peter instructs you not to place your value upon the external things you do to make yourself beautiful. Peter gives three examples of things he's talking about. See, it's, it's not the braiding of the hair which makes you beautiful in God's eyes. It's not the wearing of gold jewelry that makes you beautiful in God's eyes. It's not the putting on of dresses that make you beautiful in God's eyes. When we get to verse 4, we'll see what makes you beautiful. The internal beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. But here in verse 3, Peter points out three external trappings in his day of where women set their hearts. And Peter said, don't set your hearts there. Now, some have used this verse to say that that women should never braid their hair. Some have used this verse to say that women should never wear gold jewelry. But I don't believe that's what Peter's talking about here. I don't think he's prohibiting the wearing of braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry. And I say that because look at the third thing that he he uses as an example. He says, or the putting on of dresses. Now, some translations interpret this phrase to imply that Peter's referring to expensive dresses like the NIV speaks about expensive or fine clothes, but there's no indication in the Greek text. Literally, Peter says, I think the ESV says it this way, or the putting on of clothes. So, think about this. If, if you contend that the Bible says no braiding in the hair and no wearing gold jewelry, then you need to contend to be consistent with the very next phrase that the Bible prohibits putting on clothes. <laughs> and as I look out upon you, none of you have that theology. So, which is good, right? So you see, I don't think that Peter's talking about flat-out denials. But I think what he's talking about here is placing value upon these things rather than focusing value upon the spirit of your behavior. And in Peter's day, the warning may well have been against braided hair. And the warning today, should Peter write, might be, and I want to be sensitive about this, Please extend grace and mercy, okay, to me and to others. So don't don't be looking around the room. But he might say, not in the highlighting of your hair, or in using curling irons or flat irons. Don't place your beauty there. Y'all looking around, okay? Now who's who's nails? But see, that's not that's not the point. The point is you're valuing things there, all right? Peter's day, of the morning, may have been against gold jewelry. In our day, it might be against hoop earrings and gemstones which are in vogue today. Peter's day, the warning may have against certain styles. In our day, the warning may have against making sure that your clothes are always in the latest style. Now, it's not that these things are wrong. I don't want you women to come here next week looking frumpy, all right? <laughs> I mean, I appreciate the, the work that you did to make yourself attractive. And it, it's okay to have your hair highlighted. It's okay to use a flat iron or curling iron. It's okay to wear hoop earrings and gemstones. It's okay to wear the latest style and clothes, all right? But it's wrong if that's where you're placing your value. It's wrong if that's what's consuming you. It's wrong if in your heart you're trying to impress by what you're wearing. It's wrong if you're constantly looking to others for their approval in the way you dress. It's wrong if you're constantly wanting to make a good impression with your clothes, your hairstyle, your jewelry. It's wrong if your mind is consumed by external beauty. In fact, here is, is perhaps where you might say, well, how do I know? How do I know if my mind is consumed with external beauty or internal beauty? And I just say simply say this. Here, here's, here's one simple indicator. Just put your, your time and your heart and your value 
and your thoughts and everything that goes and, and put your external beauty on the one hand and then put your internal beauty on the other. And you say, you know, where do I spend my time? Do I spend more time on my external beauty or my internal beauty? Where do I spend more of my money? On my external beauty or on my internal beauty? Where do I spend more of my, my thinking? On my external beauty or on my internal beauty? And, and I can't answer this. There's no like, oh, this is over the line. And it's not a legalistic, oh, you don't, you know, if you're not braided hair, then you're wonderful. You're just fine. It's, not, it's all about your mind and your heart, what you're focusing on. And I just press all of you upon your hearts to focus upon the internal beauty. Spend money on your internal beauty. Spend time on your internal beauty. Make efforts on your internal beauty. And lessen your efforts on your external beauty. The Apostle Paul gives us almost a perfect parallel text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where he talks about how it is a woman ought to adorn herself. Right? He says this, I want women to adorn themselves with, he says, proper clothing. And from one culture to another, that's going to be different. And then he says this, modestly and discreetly. Then he gives the warnings, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And that leads me to believe that you know braided hair perhaps was a problem back then, or gold was an area of which they can flaunt their riches, or the pearls was, or their, their costly garments are somehow. Because those aren't modestly and discreetly. But rather, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, Rather than external interests, rather by means of good works, this is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. That's how she's to adorn herself. Adorn herself with her works. Adorn herself with the things that she does. And, and Peter gives really two helpful words here for all of you women to guide yourself in thinking about your clothing, <clears throat> your hair, your makeup, modestly and discreetly. Modestly and discreetly. And Paul, simply by those words, is simply encouraging women to dress so as not to attract attention to themselves or to their own body. Modestly, discreetly, humbly, discreetly. Like, like you can't even see it, you can't even observe it so much. Because you can so neglect your external appearance that you're actually going to stand out. I mean, you can so dress down that you'd be like, what, what is she doing? But discreetly is like you kind of disappear into the framework because it's not about what you're wearing or how your hair is made up of the day. And that's Peter's point. Do your hair and wear your gold jewelry and pick your clothes in such a way you're not going to bring attention to yourself. Don't bring attention to your clothes. Don't bring attention to your bodies. Now, before we look about where true beauty is found, I, I, I want you to think here a little bit about, about beauty. Okay, I, I want you to think about how... The Bible speaks about physical beauty of women because it does address it. How does the Bible talk about that? We might expect the Bible to say, Blessed are the beautiful because they are loved by all. Blessed are the beautiful because God has adorned them with beauty or something. But you know what? The Bible never talks that way. Listen to what the Bible says. Proverbs 31, verse 30. sets the scriptural teaching on this topic. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I mean, even this is First Peter, right? Charm, right? outward personality, outward luring, right? And, and beauty, it's vain, it's empty, it's not the external thing. But what is it? It's the internal thing. It's the fear of the Lord. The one who fears the Lord shall be praised. And throughout the Proverbs, when you see the 
the woman who's attractive. Do you know who the attractive woman is in the Proverbs often depicted as? It's the adulteress. The one who's luring and seducing and attracting the men. Proverbs 6.25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. She's the one who seduces you. She's the one that charms you and attempts you to make you believe that time with her will lead you to happiness. But time with her won't lead you to happiness. Their beauty is a, an allure, a temptation. And like a fish taking a hook, so also, on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. That's what the proverb says. An adulteress hunts for the precious life. That's what the Bible speaks about beauty oftentimes. So I thought about, well, what about the Old Testament? What about people in the Old Testament who are identified as beautiful? There are not a lot of women identified as beautiful in the Old Testament, but let me just tell you, those who are identified as being beautiful have problems. There is sin in and around their life. I mean, think about Sarah. Sarah's beauty wasn't a blessing to Abraham. It was a curse in many ways. It led him to lie about lie to Pharaoh about her. Abraham said to Sarah, See now, I I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that I may it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. <laughs> Think about that. Sarah's beauty brought trouble and temptation to Abraham, causing him to lie to Pharaoh. And not only Pharaoh, also Abimelech. Genesis chapter 20. Another person whom has said that she was beautiful was Rachel. It says in Genesis 29 verse 17 that she was beautiful of form and face. Now, this should have been a great blessing. Jacob was attracted to her and actually that was good. But it actually brought difficulty for Laban because Leah was older. Rachel was younger. She was pretty, but Leah's eyes were weak is what it says. And so she was, she was ugly. But So what did lead Laban to do? What did it lead him to do? It led him on the marriage night to give, trick him and give him Leah instead. Because you got to marry the oldest first. And Leah, quite frankly, probably had no prospects. Then Rachel. So polygamy is coming about because of it. Trickery, deceit, because of the beauty. Bathsheba is another one in the Scripture of whom it is said that she was very beautiful in appearance, Second Samuel 11, 2. And we know what happened to Bathsheba. Her beauty helped draw David into committing adultery and eventually murder. One of David's daughters was Tamar. It was said of her in two different places in Scripture that she was beautiful, and yet she had lots of problems. Her half-brother Amnon loved her. And it, it says that, that he was so frustrated because of his half-sister Tamar, it made himself ill. I'm not sure you remember the story, but basically he pretended to be sick, allured her into his bedroom and raped her because of her beauty that captured this man. So think about what the Bible says has come upon those who are beautiful. Lying, deceit, adultery, greed, incest. Don't think that external beauty is filled with blessings because there are often curses that come upon it. And yet many women have sought after external beauty. Which, by the way, is, is it's impossible to achieve. You're not going to achieve it. I mean, I think about in previous generations, for a woman to be beautiful, who was her competition? 
She competed with the other women in her tribe or her village or her social setting. Right? Without, without the worldwide media, without pictures and photographs. I mean, it was, you know, scope of maybe I don't know, 100 people, 500 people, whatever. In a, in a village, in a city, maybe someone could be exalted as a beauty queen, maybe, you know, over a couple thousand people. And we're talking the standard of beauty is the uh, Belvedere, you know, whatever, queen of who knows. But now, with worldwide distribution of media today, what's the standard of beauty which women are trying to obtain to? The most beautiful women in all the world. Photographs of most beautiful women in the world displayed all around the nation. Check out lines at the grocery store. Entire rack of magazines with the most beautiful women all around the world. And women are just having that picture of beauty just burned into their minds. That's what they're trying to obtain. And you can't obtain it, right? Think about these uh, these women. First of all, their models have devoted themselves. They're, they're, they're naturally pretty. And then they devoted themselves, their whole life to this. Right? They have financial incentives to eat right, to maintain the skinny look. They have personal trainers, most of them, keep their body in shape, finely toned and attractive. And then think about a photo shoot. Models have their hair done by a professional hairstylist. They have their, their makeup done by a professional. They have the pictures taken by a photographer who understands lighting and figures out the perfect pose for a shot. And then after hundreds of photographs, they pick the, the two or three that are the best. And even if, if those have blemish, they just turn it over to a computer artist and he touches them up a little bit. That's what you're competing against today. It's impossible. It's going to lead you to frustration if you're trying to be worldly from an external perspective. But I do have good news for you this morning, women. Is that the true beauty which God seeks is attainable for all of you today. The beauty that God sees can be obtained from all of you. It's within your grasp. External beauty, it's not in your grasp. Internal beauty is... So let's consider my second point this morning. Internal beauty. Verse 4. Peter is very clear where your internal beauty comes from. He says, let it come from the hidden person of the heart. That's where I get the internal beauty. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You see, when the Lord looks down upon all of you, women and wives here, He doesn't place value upon your physical appearance. And let me, okay, let me just step aside here. This is for the men. This is the only time, guys, I'm going to approach you. If God looks not at physical appearance, but looks for the inner person of the heart, what ought you to look at for beauty? You're wise, you're married. Potentially married. Where, where are you to find beauty? You ought to look past the externals and look into the internals of the heart. So guys, I encourage you, don't, don't, don't be attracted with the eyes of the look. Be attracted by the inner person of the heart. All right? All right. Women, we're back here with you now. God places value upon these internal qualities. In fact, this word here, precious in the sight of God, the, the idea there is, is costly. Do you remember when um, the woman took the alabaster vial of perfume and broke it and poured it over the head of Jesus and anointed him before his death? said in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, that that perfume was very costly. And that's the same word that Peter uses here. It's very costly. God would pay to see that kind of beauty. So think about this. It, if the Lord 
was the judge at a beauty contest, we might just be surprised who the winner is. In fact, recently I was given a bit of insight into the way that God looks upon women. Um, as many of you know, our, our kids are involved in this youth theater program called Christian Youth Theater, and we've had a great time with that. But after a production recently of, uh, of a play, we went to a strike party where, you know, there's thankfulness extended and people, you know, for the work they did for this good or awards given to the actors and actresses. And, you know, the whole crew is there, the cast together, all the parents and everybody. It was just a kind of a big, just it closed off this production well, at one point, one of the parents who's in charge of, I think, seating during the productions was talking about other parents who volunteered to help and she said, thank you for this, thank you for this. And then she said, but I especially want to thank, and I don't even know who this woman is, but she said, you know, whenever tensions arose or there was a problem with seating or too many people coming, she was really quick to say, well, let's just pray about it. And I don't know what the, what the situation is, but I imagine that you know, just right there amidst all the problems, this woman said, you know, Beyond, let's take it to the Lord in prayer. And they just prayed and trusted the Lord. And, and as I looked at this person, because she pointed out, and, and I guess I was looking for it, and she was over here, I said, she wouldn't win any beauty contest in my mind. You know, I, she was not the most attractive woman. All right, let's put it that way. I just use your imagination. I don't want to put it in a, in a bad light at all. But I was thinking, but you know what? I wonder how God views this woman. Because obviously, she's spiritually minded, quick to pray, dependent upon the Lord. I think that she very well could be the most beautiful woman in the room from God's perspective. Next to my wife, of course. But from God's perspective, I mean, I don't know anything about this woman. I don't know, you know. But potentially, though on the outside she's not tremendously attractive, she could have this inner quality about her that just trusts the Lord and delights the Lord and has this inner peace about her. That's how God judges. Because the Lord looks upon internal beauty rather than external beauty. And I just say, men and women, let that sink in. Let that sink in. Well, let's look here at the, the two qualities that Peter identifies for us that is costly and valuable in God's sight. And by the way, even before we look at them, it is interesting that these qualities are the hidden person of the heart, but... They do manifest itself in the way a woman talks or a woman behaves as her attitudes. So it's interesting. It's inner person, but you know what? We can observe it by observing actions rather than external beauty. Well, let's let's look at these. We've got we got two of them. We got gentleness, and we have quietness. Gentle. Uh, this word is used to describe Jesus on a several occasions, and I think as we see how it describes our Master and Lord, then we'll get a picture of what gentle means. Gentle is used in Matthew 11, verse 29, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, because I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus here pictures Himself as the gentle one into whose arms we can run. And I say also, a gentle woman is one who has open arms to whom people may run and receive comfort. Matthew 21, verse 5, uses this word to speak of Jesus. Behold, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey, gentle and humble. There's a picture there. Jesus had great power at his disposal, and yet his entry wasn't on this royal steed stallion. Rather, it was on a, a donkey. Humbly, gently, humility. 
The gentlewoman is the one who has great power at her disposal but chooses the path of humility and kindness and care. Gentleness is not weakness. Rather, it's, as many people have said, it's power under control. It's strength that's under control. That's gentleness. Gentleness is not shyness. Rather, it's calm that's able to comfort. Gentleness isn't passive. Rather, gentleness is actually active. It's an active sensitivity that handles people and situations with care. The scriptures contain a great promise to the gentle. Blessed are the meek. So it says, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That's gentleness. Let's look here at quietness. The idea here is, is one of peace. Volume isn't so much the issue here. It's more of a peace. It's used in Scripture several times to describe Christians. And I think as we see what it's talking about, I think we can apply it then rightly to women. When Paul heard that there were undisciplined people doing no work at all among the Thessalonians, he says, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. He's not talking about, you guys are just talking too loud. You just need to shut your mouths and work. He's saying it's just, you know, take the tension off of yourself. Live at peace and just do your work. That's what he's saying. In another place, Paul urged us to pray for kings. And all who are in authority so that we may, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then there you get the peace idea. We're praying for kings. We ought to pray for our next president so we can just live our Christianity in quietness and tranquility. And so likewise, when you think about a, a woman, a quiet life is the peaceful life that, that can lead in godliness. Just, just goes about its, its own work. Not great fanfare, not great applause, not complaining. It's kind of about doing the work. The quiet one is, is the one who isn't bringing attention to herself, that's going about her business in peace and godliness. Now, the quietness isn't idleness. It's being productive, actually. Quietness isn't passive. It's actively seeking to be about doing its work in peace and kindness. So you put these two together. And you get the picture of a woman who's calm, cool, and collected, even when trouble's brewing. Right? The, the gentle woman isn't anxious or worried, isn't stressed out and frazzled, isn't contentious and argumentative, isn't boisterous and loud, doesn't need to air her own opinions, isn't angry, letting others know her feelings with harsh words or loud door slams or stomps of the feet. Rather, she's the kind, peaceful, loving, caring, encouraging woman. That's who she is. And even, even when all around her is chaotic, let me describe the situation in our home. There's dinner to be prepared, there's children to be bathed, there's diapers to be changed, there's laundry to be folded, there's beds to be made, there's rooms to be mopped, there's bills to be paid, there's phone calls to be made, there's children to be disciplined. And the quiet and gentle woman is calm and assuring through it all. You know, she's like the policeman who emits uh, the... the Pulling over a speeder, you know, the flashing lights, the siren, woo, 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 the inconvenience. He gets out and then he talks to the one who's been speeding. What does the policeman say? Um, excuse me, ma'am, can I have your driver's license, please? Thank you. Goes back to his car and says, very calmly, amidst all the things, he's not upset. He just kind of deals with the matter of factly. You are going such and such a speed. You know, I need to write you a ticket. You can pay for it at the courthouse. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. 
That's what a woman ought to be in the midst of all the chaos. And all, she's, the, she's the calm one. Not denying truth, not just you know, being like the policeman, dealing with it, whatever, meeting out discipline where it's needed. Right? Confronting the issue where it's needed, but, but doing so in a, in a calm and gentle demeanor. That's a picture of a gentle and quiet woman. Let me just ask you, is that the sort of woman you want to be? Women? Is that what you want to be? I think if we'd have the opportunity to go around the room, I think that this is what most, if not all of you, would like for your life. So, you know, that's the kind of woman that I, I want to be. I want to be the, the calm, secure, patient, in control one. Well, at this point, you might ask yourself, how? And where the truth be known, I'd say probably most women struggle with being quiet and gentle as well. Well, let me help. Just some practical advice of, of how to do this. First of all, I say first and foremost, you need to realize that this, this is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Particularly, I'm thinking about patience, gentleness, and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so... To exhibit these qualities, you need to have the Spirit of God in your life so as to produce these qualities in you. It means you need to believe in Christ, trust in Christ, see His Spirit come upon you to transform your life and your character. You want to be gentle and quiet? Believe in Christ. Let His Spirit dwell within you and produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Second, probably the next most important thing, you need to be diligent to nourish your mind and heart on God's Word. The Spirit of God feeds on God's Word. So as you put it in your heart, your mind, the Spirit of God eats it and is healthy then within you. So do all you can do to put Scripture in your mind. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Read books that help. Listen to sermons. Whatever it takes. Because a heart that's equipped in God's Word is better able to exhibit these qualities. Third, my third recommendation for you is to pursue God with all of your life. You can't just say gentle and quiet spirit over here on the side, you know, and whatever you're doing over here. Gentle and quiet, it's got to be God with all of your life. It says in uh, Romans 12.1, I'm sure many of you memorize this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Right? Just offer yourself, give yourself completely to God. When you give your heart completely to God, your life will reflect His qualities. Fourth piece of advice, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. Yesterday I attended a seminar at Kishwaukee Bible Church led by Frank Yonke. We, we made that seminar known. And several families at church attended that. And the seminar was entitled, War of Words, Trusting God with Every Word Out of Your Mouth. And Frank just stepped us right through the book of James. It was It was excellent. In fact, I'm thinking about asking him to come up here. I just found it so valuable for us in our life. And I think those who came and saw it valuable. Yeah, Krauses, Robines, yeah, Preston, good. Who else is there? Jason, found it good. You know, maybe bring that up here. I'm sure he'd be glad to do that sometime. But one of the things he talked about is that when you interact with people, you interact with your words. You make sure that you fight right with your words, right? The war of words. Be careful with your words. And he read James 1.19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I said, you know what? That's a gentle and quiet spirit. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And I just tell you, women, when you focus your attention upon listening to others, 
your tendency will be toward gentleness and meekness. Fifth, real, pra- real practical. Work hard to discipline your children. Particularly if you're in a home, lots of kids, discipline your children. I've seen this scene. You've seen this scene. My wife recently saw a scene. She reminded me that she was in the supermarket. She observed this woman who was very frustrated with her child being disobedient. She was angry and yelling at her child. In fact, so much so that Yvonne almost even just said, please, for the sake of your child. Right, Yvonne? You said, please, for the sake of your child, be kind to him. Him or her, I forget what it was. What it was. Listen, but if your children are obedient, they won't tempt you in this way. I think one of the things that probably stirs wives with children not to have a quiet and gentle spirit is the children, which are always making messes and are disobedient. Just, ah! Right? So work hard to solve the problem. Right? Finally, here's my last piece of advice. Real practical. Structure your life. Structure your life. Don't allow yourself to get too busy. Make choices to limit your activities. Get enough sleep. Plan ahead. Allow enough time to accomplish what you need to. Just plan your life. You know, the pressures of life are a way of squeezing everything out of our life. I mean, we always fill up all our lives with something to do. And you need to make conscious choices. Say, you know what? Maybe something to do with sleep, right? Maybe something to do is allow a buffer of time so I'm not so hurried from one thing to another. Maybe it means you're not going to do everything. But listen, that will help cultivate within you a quiet and gentle spirit. Well, as I close my message this morning, I want to encourage all of you with one word in the text that I've skipped over this point. It's the word imperishable. Imperishable. Peter says that a gentle and quiet spirit is an imperishable quality. It's not going to perish. It will never fade away. Women, your physical appearance will fade away. It will. Now, you may prolong your youthful beauty by moisturizing creams and cosmetic surgery and makeup and exercise and dyeing your hair. But listen, your beauty is fading. Your beauty is like the glory of the flower of grass. In July, we look at the grass outside, deep, rich, green, beautiful. What does the grass look like in October? Brown and wilted and done. So is your external beauty. You may be in the July of your life right now. But October is coming. And for some of you, it's here, okay? And for those of you that's here, you can give testimony that it comes. And those of you who are in July, maybe you ought to talk to those who are in October and just say, How, how's it ha- did it happen? How did it happen? To learn, just ingrain your mind that, that external beauty is fading. I have news for all of you women. If the Lord allows you to live long enough, someday you are going to look just like your grandmother. <laughs> Isn't that a great prospect of something to look forward to? Yeah, here's what I remember my grandmother. She was short. She was round. She had warts and blemishes on her face and had razor stubble. And I remember that because every time she kissed me, she'd like chafe my cheek and stuff. 
But that's where you're headed. Your external beauty is fading. But the internal beauty of your heart can continue well beyond your 80s. Because it says it's imperishable. And in fact, it can increase and become more and more and more and more and more prominent in your life as you live, live on. And you know what? I found that age has a way of bringing out the true person of the heart. As women get older, they either go this way and get more and more and more and more and more sweet, or they go the other way and get more and more angry and irritated and self-centered, right? Have you seen that? Have you ever visited a nursing home and spoken with the old women at the nursing home? I mean, they're all old women, okay, to begin with, but... But you can pretty quickly discern, is, is this one one who is cultivating the quiet and gentle spirit in her heart? Because there are, are old women that I've spoken to who speak with a tenderness and a thankfulness and a kindness about them that is indicative of a quiet and gentle spirit. Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know old women like that? And then there are others who go the other way, always complaining, always airing their feeling loud complaining. You know women? Women like that too? And I say, ladies, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I've told Yvonne on, on many occasions, it's the same with men. Okay, I, I lied. I'll, I'll say a second in men. There are men when they're older who are sweet and gentle and kind and gracious. Uh, I, I saw that especially. I was working at the hospital um, the Calvin, Illinois before I became a pastor. And we had Volunteers, a lot of older folks, so older men and older women. And you know, the, the, the men, there were some particularly older men who had a, a, a nice disposition about them. They were the greeters. They were the ushers. They, they helped carry things. They, they carried flowers to rooms and things like that. And they were just nice and sweet. And I've told Yvonne many times, when I grow old, I want to be a nice, sweet man. Because there are a lot of grumpy old men, right? And so likewise, women... Take it your pledge. You want to be a sweet, gracious, kind, loving woman when you're looking like grandma. Because God looks upon that and that will never fade away. And the way to be that then is to be that now. So maybe take some of these practical pieces of advice and pursue there. And really, what I'm exhorting you to is putting your mind upon the things that last forever. Don't put your mind on the things that are temporary. Put your mind on the things that will last forever. I think about if there's anything at Rock Valley Bible Church that we're about, it's about setting your heart on eternity. Right? And that's why we speak so much of Christ. That's why we think about the gospel. That's why we think about our sins forgiven. That's why we think about judgment before God. Because we want to prepare us for the day we meet Him and we want to prepare for eternity forever. And the wise thing to do is to focus your heart upon eternity and not upon here and now and today, right? And that's all I'm exhorting you women to do is to seek your beauty, seek your beauty in light of eternity. Well, let me pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper as we again focus on eternity. Lord, I would pray for beautiful women at Rock Valley Bible Church that, uh, Lord, we would see many women here in this congregation who have a quiet and gentle spirit about them which, yes, is, is hidden in the heart, but, yes, is manifested. And uh, I think about the women here and even particularly some minds, some names come to my mind, particularly who are exhibiting these qualities. 
I pray that you would help them, encourage them. I pray that they'd be models and examples to others. And I pray that the women would, by your grace, be able to see and know these things. And, and where they lack, God, I pray that you would answer the prayers of those women who are seeking to be like this because that's what you call them to be. So we simply trust you with this. If some women need to make some changes in their behavior, their time allocation, their expenses, Lord, I pray you convict their hearts so they would change and be beautiful in your sight rather than pursuing the vanity of beauty in our sight. So God, we just entrust you with these things and I pray that you'd help. pray in Jesus' name. Well, as we close our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.